I have the privilege of reading the scripture this morning. It's found on page 841 in your pew Bibles. John chapter 8, 31 to 38. So, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, Truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So, if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. This is God's word. May it go deep in our hearts. Good morning. And happy Mother's Day again. Uh, My name's Tony. I'm I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, I'm I'm gonna tell you up front that public speaking makes me nervous. Um, and it has ever, ever since I was very young. Um, when I was, I think about 10 years old, um, it was right around the, the bicentennial, and our school was doing a presentation, and I had a little speech to give, and I think it was about 30 seconds long. I memorized it. I walked out on stage, stepped up to the microphone, said the first line, looked out and saw all these faces and parents and my mouth dropped open and I just went blank. And, I, and it, felt, it felt like 10 minutes went by. Uh, I looked over at the teacher, she gave me my next line. I started talking again and I pretty much made a vow that I would never step up to a microphone again. <laughs> um, so if it seems like uh, I, I'm reading a lot that I'm afraid to look up from my manuscript, it's because I am. Um, I I, I don't want to lose my place. Um, But with that said, uh, would you pray with me? I'll get started here. Father God, thank you for for the profound privilege it is, Lord, to, uh, to see your word, to know your word, Lord, to to know you through your word. Thank you for for the profound privilege it is to represent you, Lord, as as your child. Um, You give that privilege, Lord, to to everyone who who will place their trust in you. And you are a a generous God. I I pray that that would shine forth this morning as we look at your word. And uh, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So this morning we're, we're continuing on in our series through John's Gospel. The series is titled, That You Might Believe. The title is from the fact that John tells us at the end of his Gospel that this is why he wrote it, that, that we might believe. Believe what? That we might believe that Jesus is the long-awaited Savior of the human race. 
But save us from what? Save us for what? The answer to those two questions, what are we saved from? What are we saved for? Are two really important questions. And I, and I think the verses we're looking at this morning answer both questions. Saved from what? Let me read these verses again quickly. It's not a lot, but just to refresh your memory. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. So Jesus speaking to a group of people who had believed in him, God's word tells us. He says to them, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. This is a group of people who have heard him speak for a while, probably. They've probably witnessed or heard of one or more miracles. He's turned water to wine at a wedding. He's fed 5,000 people with a few fish and a few loaves of bread. He's healed several people. The official son in chapter 4, the invalid by the pool called Bethesda in chapter 5, And up to this point, they are believing him. But many of them in the ways that Noah Gwynn had talked about in his sermon a few weeks ago, they believe things about Jesus. That maybe he's a great magician. He's turned water to wine. Maybe he's a pretty cool vending machine. He gives out free food. Or maybe he's a wise guru. I mean, he definitely says some interesting things about God. But it's at this point that Jesus announces to this group an if-then statement. It's actually an if-then-then-then statement. If you abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. The then is implied, but I'd say it's definitely there. Then you will know the truth, and then the truth will set you free. There's a requirement of true discipleship that's not to be assumed It is this abiding in his word or remaining in his word. So this remaining in Jesus' word leads to a person knowing the truth, the truth that sets a person free. This statement makes it clear that it's possible to have a type of belief that at some point fails to produce true discipleship, which then does not lead to knowing the truth, which then does not set a person free. There are different terms for a type of belief that's fleeting, insincere, or lacking in action. Probably the most common term used to describe that is intellectual assent. This is the kind of belief that James talks about, the demons have in the second chapter of James. He states, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and they shudder. 
I've often talked with people who tell me just that. I believe in God. Okay, as James said, you do well. But this is not the abiding that Jesus is talking about in verse 31. It's not the type of knowing either. In order to know the truth, we're called to another kind of belief. It's a belief that trusts Jesus with not just our life in the here and now, but instead a belief that trusts him with our eternal soul. A trust that demonstrates we believe his words, that they are the very words of God. A trust that shows that we believe that when Jesus says the debt for our sin has been paid, it's been paid. And a life that shows that Jesus is risen from the dead and alive in us. It's a trust that produces action. I recently read a story in one of the commentaries that I went through to prepare for this sermon. I've been a Christian for more than 30 years. I'd never heard this story. Uh, Maybe some of you have, and if you have, I apologize because you're going to hear it again. But it really impressed me, this principle of, of what real trust, real belief looks like. It's about a, an acrobat, a Frenchman whose stage name was Blondin. He was given that name at a, a very early age, I think because he had very blonde hair. At the age of five, he was so talented that he was employed by a circus. As a five-year-old, he had a job. <clears throat> Over his life, he became an expert tightrope walker. And at some point, he traveled to America, saw the Niagara Falls, and decided he had to span a tightrope across those falls and walk it. He became obsessed with that idea. He got a promoter. They promoted this event. And 25,000 people showed up to watch Blondin walk across a tightrope, 160 feet above the falls, from one end to the other and back. And before he started, he said to the crowd, I'm going to walk across this tightrope, turn around and come back. Do you believe? And a handful of people in the crowd said, we believe. The majority of the crowd just heckled him. But he did it. He walked across, he came back, and when he came back, he asked the crowd, do you believe? A lot more people said yes that time. He continued to do this stunt day after day. The crowds began to shrink. There weren't 25,000 people week two, week three. They were still turning up, but not in the same numbers. So Blondin started to add some pizzazz to his tightrope. He'd walk out to the middle, lower rope down to the maid of the mist boat, pull up a bottle of wine, take a few swigs, finish his walk, come back. He carried a small stove out to the middle of the rope, cooked an omelet, sat down in the middle of the rope, and ate his omelet. But his greatest feat was yet to come. Blondin says to the crowd, I'm going to take a man from the audience, put him on my shoulders, and walk across the tightrope. Would any of you like to be that man? A man stood up, came forward. It was actually his manager, who had known Blondin for a long time and had great confidence in him. He hopped on his shoulders. Blondin walks across the tightrope, turns around and comes back, says to the crowd, do you believe They all shout out, we believe. Then he looks at a man who's not his manager, who hasn't known him, 
and says, would you like to climb on and take a look at the falls from my shoulders? And the man who had just shouted, I believe, looked at Blondin and said, not on your life, buddy. <laughs> you see, Blondin's manager had a type of belief that the man in the audience did not. He actually trusted the acrobat with his life, a trust that had come from living with the tightrope walker that allowed him to have a confidence that could come in no other way. This is the knowing that comes only through an obedient living in the Lordship of Jesus. Rather than a sideline spectator who knows things about Jesus, theoretically, it's a belief that moves us off of the sideline and onto the tightrope. As we move on in verse 32, Jesus says, the true disciple, from verse 31, will know the truth and understand he's not just talking about a set of intellectual facts. He's talking about a person. He's talking about himself. He's telling them that in order to be free, he must set them free. It's at this very point that so many have gotten Christianity wrong. Years ago, as a fairly new Christian, but very excited Christian, I was eager to share my faith in Jesus with whoever would listen. But like most new Christians, I was not well equipped to do so at least not without unnecessarily offending people. I had gotten the nickname Turner Burn Tony. Uh, it's a little harsh. <laughs> a friend told me about a program that a local church was doing that would help us learn how to share our faith. It was called Evangelism Explosion. They taught you how to move a conversation from day-to-day -day topics like, where do you work? Do you have any hobbies? to more difficult topics like life after death, heaven. Asking people about their church background was often a good segue into a deeper conversation about God. And once we were there, we were, we were trained to ask two very basic but important questions. They called them the diagnostic questions. I'm guessing many of you have heard them before. The first one, if you were to die tonight, do you believe you would go to heaven? Question two, if you were standing at the gates of heaven and God asked, why should I let you in, what would you say? The first question would give you a sense of whether or not they'd given much thought to their life beyond the grave. The second told you what they trusted in for a relationship with God. In other words, we were asking, are you free and how is it you came to be free? Keep that in mind as we look at verse 33. They answered him, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? So when told by Jesus that he would set them free, they respond by letting Jesus know that they believe they were already free. And the basis of their freedom was their natural lineage. They were convinced that a right relationship with God could be assumed on the basis of who their parents were. And they're claiming a heritage that has never known slavery. This despite the fact that the Jewish people have been subject to Egypt, Assyria, Babylon, Greece, Syria, and Rome. So how is it that they believe they were already free? 
They were deceived. Deceived and proud of it. And Jesus was confronting their deception. I cannot tell you how many times in the course of those evangelism visits that we asked those diagnostic questions, that we got answers to that second question that did not include the slightest mention of Jesus. As a fairly new Christian, I was shocked and disillusioned. I assumed that everyone I went to church with had entrusted their hope of heaven, having a relationship with God, in the finished work of Jesus. I thought this was Christianity 101. But when asked that second question, many of the people responded with a list of their good deeds. I've gone to church faithfully. I've tithed faithfully. I try to help people when I can. I try not to break the Ten Commandments. We would even sometimes get the answer that my parents were Baptist or Lutheran or some other denomination. So I guess I am too. We were trained to repeat the person's answer back to them. So you're saying you've attended church faithfully. Yep, yep. You've tithed. Yep, yep. You try to keep the temp. Yep. And that's what you would say to God. That's what you would say face to face with a holy God. You would give him a list of all the good things you've done. Is there anything else you would say to him? I think that's it, they would say. Sometimes, as hard as we tried to get a little Jesus out of that answer, it just didn't happen. And as we would explain that none of our good works could take away the sin that had broken our relationship with God, some of those who had given us answers that were just full of me, 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 I, 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 they would get angry being told that their good works, their lineage, their false beliefs, that God, if he was nice enough, would let everyone in. Being told these things were not true. It made some people angry, really angry. Like the Jews in this story. I don't know if there's anything that makes a person more angry than this message. The person who believes they're already free, they're already good enough for a holy God. When you tell them that they're not, you can do it with gentleness, with respect, with love, but it's hard to hear. So we were asked to leave several homes um, in doing this. Sometimes people came to understood the gospel and, and their lives were changed forever, but Sometimes people got upset and just told us to get out. We were even called in to talk to some of the church leadership because some of the people who threw us out called the church to tell them about these wicked people that had come to their house. And they wanted to know what it is, what did you say to these people? We told them that they needed to trust Christ to have a relationship with God. That's it? Yeah, pretty much. Why are they so upset? I don't know. It's as if they'd never heard it. Um, so yeah, as, as a new Christian, my assumptions that everyone that attended church and sang, we believe that they actually trusted in the finished work of Jesus, my assumptions have been shattered. 
I'd seen too many people testify that their hope of heaven rested in themselves and themselves alone. I'd seen that if you already think you're free, someone showing you your chains can be very hard to take. Just look at the last sentence in verse 33. How is it you say you will become free? Jesus had offended their assumptions, and I think this is often the case today. Many of the people that we might share our faith with are under the false impression that they're already free. Jesus makes it clear in verse 34 that he has a different type of slavery and therefore a different type of freedom in mind. I recently saw an interview with Elon Musk and Bill Maher. The conversation came around to what Elon Musk called the woke mind virus. He was lamenting that it's what's made heading up Twitter difficult. Bill asked him to explain what he meant by that, and he gave an example of a story where high school kids were asked what they knew about George Washington. And many of them said the only thing they knew about him was that he was a slave owner. While Bill and Elon both agreed that slavery was horrible, they thought it didn't seem like a good thing that that would be the only thing an American high school student would know about George Washington. This then launched Bill Maher into a rant where he explained that slavery's been practiced all over the world forever. To which I thought, true that. <laughs> he then said it had been practiced by people of all races, even people of color, to which I thought, true that. But then Bill said, it's huge in the Bible. The Bible loves it. The Bible loves it. This is an intelligent grown man who I think thinks he understands what's in the Bible. And I thought, wait, what? The Bible loves it? Elon Musk giggles and says, yeah, at no point does it say in the Bible that slavery is bad. They don't condemn it at all. These are two intelligent men. And this is somehow their understanding of the Bible. And I think, unfortunately, it's the understanding of more and more Americans who've never opened a Bible and actually read it. I'd argue that much of the Bible, from Genesis through Revelation, is about just that, slavery, and how to be free from it. Would you turn with me to Luke chapter 4? I'm going to read verses 16 through 21. It's on page 807 in the Pew Bibles, if you want to turn there quickly. Luke chapter 4, 16 through 21. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The 
these words that were written hundreds of years before Jesus was born, he's telling them it's happening right now. I've, I've come, this, the Savior that you've waited for, I'm here, and the slavery you've endured, I'm here to set you free. Jesus answered them in verse 34, truly, truly, we're back in John's gospel, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. This is Jesus responding to, we've never been enslaved to anyone. See, this isn't the kind of slavery that we focus on exclusively in our culture, as horrible as that kind of slavery is. The type Jesus is talking about here is much, much worse. This is a slavery that doesn't end, a slavery whose only wage is death, a slavery where the slaves are so deceived they don't even know they're slaves. This is the very bondage that Jesus has come to set them free from, the bondage brought on by the sin they know they're guilty of to break the chains that respond to only one thing, the blood of Christ. In his loving kindness, Jesus is inviting them into a relationship that will change their status forever from slave to child of God. From slave to a child of God. This is what we are freed for. A new relationship to God. In verse 35, Jesus compares the slave who's not a member of the family to a son who is a member. He says, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. John tells us in the first chapter of this gospel in verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. When we're reborn into God's family, our status changes. I recently had the privilege of attending an adoption proceeding it's the little girl that was up here this morning, Priscilla. Uh, I don't know, I, I doubt that they're all like this adoption proceeding, but this one was amazing. Uh, I, I was truly blessed to be there, in large part because it seemed like all the people involved were giving thanks to God for making things happen, even the judge. The process itself was impressive. There were actually two things that happened I'd never seen a, an adoption proceeding before, but I guess when, when someone's a foster parent, the first thing that happened was they had to terminate the foster relationship. They had to officially terminate the relationship, so the judge did what he had to do and signed what he had to sign, and everyone applauded, I think thinking, we're done here, like it's, it's official. He said, no, no, this is only part of the process. We first have to end this relationship, and now we make the new relationship official. That this little girl would become part of a new family. That she would forever be their daughter. I can't put into words everything about that. That was so wonderful. That's so brought back to me what God has done, what God does for us in the gospel. To know that my status as his child will never change. 
Let's, let's look at the last three verses of this passage, and I'll finish up this morning. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me, because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you heard from your father. Of all the words in the English language, there are a few that have been warped to mean something different from what the Bible is talking about, like the word freedom. Probably the word love would come in first, but freedom, I think, would be a close second. The type of freedom the Bible talks about is something that people everywhere so desperately long for that they will make great sacrifices in hopes of attaining it. And yet few people seem to realize this type of true freedom. The world's version of so-called freedom where we throw off all restraint and indulge ourselves with nonstop self-centered pleasure, nonstop pain-avoiding self-indulgence, it only leads to bondage, to slavery. This freedom that Jesus offers is something very different. It's a freedom that allows us to be who we ought to be, to do what we ought to do, and to do it joyfully because we know that the words from the God who made us can be trusted. It was apparent that these men who claimed to be the offspring of Abraham were not free because the words of God spoken by Jesus, God in the flesh, caused them to want to kill him. This is a bondage of the worst kind, the kind that makes a man want to kill the very God who created him. The God who came to earth became a man, hung on a cross, died for their sins, rose from the dead. A bondage that would make you want to kill that God. And all because his word told him they were wrong, deeply wrong. Ask yourself, what am I trusting in today to span that gorge between myself and a holy God? Any answer other than Jesus is one that will leave you in bondage. And if you've been set free, show the people in your life who are not free the one who can set them free. Remember, when you show them their chains, do it with gentleness and respect. But for their sake and God's glory, do it. I'll close with this encouragement and reminder. This abiding in Jesus' word is something that Jesus lovingly invites us into. and It's an abiding that happens in community. We grow in knowing the truth of Jesus in community. We live out our freedom in Christ in community. And that community is the church. That church that God is building is a family. Not a group of slaves, but rather children. Children of a loving God. Free to love the way God tells us to. Free to climb upon the Savior's back and shout, I believe. Will you pray with me again? Father God, we, we thank you, Lord, for, for calling us out of the darkness. Lord, for, for breaking the chains of our bondage to sin, showing us the way to be free. Lord, may we come to know you more and more deeply. Lord, come to trust you more and more fully. Come to experience the freedom that you give us, Lord. Help us to realize that our chains have been broken. We are free to love, free to live the way you tell us to. 
free to glorify you forever. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.